G'day, and welcome to My Favourite Album. I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon. In each episode, I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. My guest today is a Grammy-winning producer, songwriter, musician, and a drummer who can make you dance, cry, shout, or strut with almost imperceptible variations through his unparalleled mastery of feel. From Saturday Night Live to the world's most dangerous band, Keith Richards and the expensive winos, the John Mayer trio, his band with Megan Voss, The Verbs, and countless records beyond, he stands for tastefulness and timelessness. Qualities in full force on one of his most recent and best projects, the Grammy-nominated Robert Cray in High Rhythm, recorded at the Sacred Royal Studios in Memphis with members of the legendary High Rhythm section. Steve Jordan, welcome to My Favourite Album. Good day, mate. That's a fantastic intro. I'm blushing. (laughs) You can't really tell, but uh, yeah, wow. Nice. Thank you. How's it going? Uh, It's good. Um, Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Um, How's the tea? The tea is fantastic. Hydrated honey, dehydrated honey, or whatever it's called. Honey pearls in my green tea. Fantastic. New sponsor for the show, I think, after this. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. So we're going to change the format of the show up a bit today because you've had such a long and diverse career. You've got a pretty diverse set of influences and albums that have influenced you. So I think we'll talk about, instead of talking about one album that's had a big impact on your life and you as a musician, we might talk about a bunch of albums that have had a big impact on you as a musician. It's one of those things where, like when someone asks me who my favorite 10 drummers are or guitar players, it's, I can't really just give you that small a number because I have so many different influences and there's so many amazing musicians and great music that I can name countless people you know, that have influenced me or whatever. And so I always have a problem with these short lists, you know. I just can't do it, you know. So when uh, you came to me about the show, the one album, I just said, well, that's impossible. I can't do it, you know, I don't know, <laughs> you know. So then I tried to figure out, well, what what would that entail? I mean, what, where would that, how would I start? So I thought, okay, well, let's start with my favorite band and what my favorite album of that band so my favorite band are the Beatles What are my favorite Beatle albums? Well, I'm thinking of albums as opposed to compilations that labels put together. Like, what is the album? That's why I don't include, like, greatest hits albums or something like that, because that's not really an album. It's a compilation of great stuff. So, okay. And they've revolutionized the art of album making. So, So with that in mind, even though this wasn't, really an album that 
was in the period where they decided well they weren't going to play live anymore but they were just going to focus on revolutionizing recording in the studio meet the beatles in america which is with the beatles in the uk and the rest of the world is probably well it's definitely one of my favorite albums and an album that had a great impact on me and in my life besides the fact that I Want to Hold Your Hand is a very unusual sounding record from the intro right until to the beginning of John's vocal. You never really heard anything like that before. And uh, it's pretty uh, wild, but uh, I Saw Her Standing There is probably my favorite song on the record. And uh, it's an incredible track. I got into a period of time, even like uh, 20 years after uh, I first heard it, where I would play it over and over and over again. You know, I just love that song and I love that record. With the Beatles or Meet the Beatles is one of my favorite records ever. Then, of course, besides, you know, skipping like Revolver and Rubber Soul, which is hard to do, um, I would say that obviously Sgt. Pepper's is an incredible work of mastery and majesty. Pretty life-changing experience, uh, that record. Then, of course, you have the White Album. But even before you get to the White Album, I love Magical Mystery Tour. Now, Magical Mystery Tour being a soundtrack record, you know, there was stuff for the film, and then there was stuff that was kind of like a compilation where they put, you know, Penny Lane and... and, and Strawberry Fields on that album. Strawberry Fields was actually recorded at the same time as one of the first tracks that could have easily been on Sgt. Pepper's. So that record, I mean, I love like Blue Jay Way. I just love that. So I love that album. I know some people don't take it as seriously, but if you go song by song, that record is one of the greatest records ever made. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And then, of course, the White Album and then Abbey Road. So, um, you know, those are the Beatle records. And, 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 you know, as a kid, I loved the Hard Day's Night soundtrack and the Help soundtrack. I would listen to those over and over again. So... Um, Needless to say, very, very influential on me, on the way I hear music, on how I make music. Was Ringo the first drummer that you were really aware of? No, no, he wasn't. The first drummer I was really aware of, I was listening to a lot of jazz and R&B and stuff. But, right, you know, but he was the drummer that made me want to play the drums. Right. In uh, February of 1964, when the Beatles were at Sullivan's show, me, like millions of other people, our lives were changed. I was no exception. Changed my life. Started drawing pictures of them on stage while I was supposed to be doing schoolwork in, in, in class. I was drawing Ringo behind the drums. I mean, you know, so, 
he was the person that actually made me want to play. But I also have very in early influences like Tony Williams because he was playing with Miles Davis at the age of 17, which was unbelievable. I mean, he was 17 years old and he had the the knowledge of a 900-year-old person. I mean, it was not really... It boggles the mind to this day how he was such a sage at that age. And so he set the tone for me as far as my approach to wanting to be to get to a certain level at a certain time he put the time frame up like okay i had to be i was never you're never going to be as good as he was at that age i mean i don't know anybody who was now of course were people really great on other instruments at that age you know i mean you know you have the brilliance of stevie wonder and ray charles and stuff like that at a very early age um, but um, as far as drumming goes, with the knowledge of playing with the people that he was playing with and the innovative things that he was doing, uh, it's unparalleled. And then uh, there was Art Blakey, who my dad turned me on to. He said, if I learned how to play the drum solo on Benny Golson's uh, Blues March, which was on uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers record, uh, that if I learned how to do that, I would go places. And he was right. He was an engineer slash architect. He was not a musician, but there was music always in the house. And he listened uh, a lot. He was a Miles Davis fan. He was a Clifford Brown fan first, but then Clifford Brown died in a car accident. And he changed his allegiance to Miles. Um, but he, listened, he was an avid jazz fan and collector. And... And he was right. It was very astute because Art Blakey swung harder than anyone. And the, the drum solo on Blues March is very melodic. But it also, you know, if you're learning how to play that as a kid, I'm eight years old, I'm learning how to play that. You learn about technique with your hands. Uh, so you have some dexterity going. It's a very melodic drum solo. So you, you know, you learn how to create melody on the drums, which a lot of people don't play melodically the drums so that was a head start in that direction and then you know and it, so you have the groove you have the the handwork and then you have the melodic input said my dad was very astute that way it was some of the best advice i ever got <laughs> you know so get, getting back to the, the the ringo thing obviously ringo john paul and george were a huge influence on me and still are but i was listening to the beatles in one ear and miles davis in the other ear you know as a kid and then of course i'm listening to stacks and motown so you have benny benjamin playing great drums al jackson jr so like, uh, for instance, I love Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, so I list like to go into a Go-Go album because I love that song and I love 
Ooh, Baby, and all those songs that they recorded at that time. Tracks of My Tears is on that record. Amazing record. Tracks of My Tears is one of the most incredible records ever made. I mean, that listen, that it makes me, it gives me goosebumps when I listen to Tracks of My Tears. so beautifully played and 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 what a song and what a delivery Smokey and 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 the Funk Brothers playing I mean amazing and those records made they you feel something physically you know they touch you and I when I when I think of that record I go right back to when I first heard it the feeling you know that I got so you have that the, in, in Temptations Live is a live record, obviously, but I used to perform that record for my family on Sunday nights as all five Temptations. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I know that record backwards and forwards, and so I love that record. So it's a huge influence on me. The first album I ever had, since we're talking about albums, we're not even going to get into singles or anything. I had uh, Peter Gunn's. Uh, by Henry Mancini. Peter Gunn was a television show, a very popular television show in the 60s, late 50s, early 60s. Henry Mancini was the composer, legendary composer, and uh, it's a great record. And I believe the great Al Schmidt recorded that record, actually. This was a friend of mine. It's funny that that's one of those shows, TV shows, where the theme has outlasted the actual show. Absolutely. A lot of people probably know that or they heard it in the Blues Brothers or whatever, but right. they have no idea that it's from a TV show originally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Craig Stevens was Peter Gunn. And, uh, but that the album itself is amazing. I can listen to the whole album. The whole album is a soundtrack to Cool. You know the 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 instrumentation, the 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 lead instruments being vibes and trombone and stuff like that. What a sound! Amazing record, and it puts you in a mood. Albums that can create a mood for a person are very special. Uh, people say that uh, John Mayer's Continuum album did that for people that put them in a mood. I know that uh, like Dire Straits making movies. That record, for me, put me in a mood at a certain period of my life. Of, I listened to that record for like a year, you know, just I was in this frame of mind. And that, that was like a soundtrack, you know, for me. Um, um, even though I didn't put it on the list, but I, I'm, as we're talking about things, you know, records that do that are special. 
there's um, there's a riot going on by Sly and the Family Stone, which is a, a groundbreaking record. I don't even know where to start. The playing, the the sheer inventiveness of getting into every molecule of funk and and just groove. It's a very special special record here again. Guy pushing the envelope uh, musically. I had um, David Ryan Harris on the show not too long ago, and that was his favorite album, actually. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. It's it's. I don't even know where to begin as far as um, each individual track. It's just the whole vibe of the record, you know. Well, I think it is one of those records where, you know, the individual tracks are great, but what the mood that the album adds up to is really the most important thing about exactly it. it's a force it's a it's a statement you know and that's what it was meant to to be and that's it, he was successful you know the stand the slander family stone stand album i love that record that's one of my favorite records ever and uh it's almost like uh, a greatest hits album. There's so many great yeah. songs on it. Yeah. it, you know. So people think of it as a greatest hits album, but the Stand album is actually one of my favorite records ever. Don't you have? I don't know the symbols or part of the kit that was used on on Everyday People. The yeah, the you know, song. funny thing. Um, I've been so fortunate in my life to have met a lot of my heroes. The the one person that I didn't meet that I just missed meeting was John Lennon. And I and then six months after he was assassinated, I found out that he actually had heard me play because he had gone into... I had missed him, excuse me, I had missed him uh, going into the record plant. The Blues Brothers were mixing the record plant, and he was there working on something. I was a little behind schedule, as I've been known to be, so I'd missed him at the record plant by like five minutes. And I was really bummed out about it. And then, of course, he was killed. And I thought, this is beyond the, if you can say, beyond the tragedy of his death. Um, I felt robbed because I, I, um, I'd always hoped to play with him one day. And it was a go- it was a goal, you know. I set goals, and I like to achieve the goals that I set. And um, and then about six months after he was killed, I found that that he had actually peeked his head into the session uh, that I was in. And I think the music was playing, so I think he may have wow. heard a beat or two. Uh, so that gave me a little, not relief or something, you know, because there's no relief from that. But um, at least that was something, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was. It's still a hard thing, you know, to even think about. Um, we were in New York that night, and uh, I wasn't too far away from the Dakota that night. And um, walking over to the Dakota, uh, it was like everybody was. We were all zombies, and there was a heavy fog over the city. It was a weird. It was one of the weirdest things, ever. But uh, anyway, I don't know how we got there, but, you know, just... Well, you were saying, you, you, unfortunately, John Lennon wasn't one of them, but you have gotten to yeah, you know, yeah, work to, with a yeah, lot of your to heroes. my heroes. So, yeah, so with Greg Rico, the, the drummer for Sliner Family Stone, 
I was listening to them as a kid, and I, when I got my first hi hat, the symbols were awful. They weren't really even symbols. They were a poor excuse for symbols. You know, you hit them once and they bent. You know that kind of thing. I mean, they were they were they were symbols. It was a terrible thing. But I got in a hi hat, and I didn't. I was learning how to use the mechanism of a hi hat because when I was uh, growing up, my parents didn't get me a drum set. They got me. Uh, stuff piece by piece depending on how I was progressing right so I got a snare drum at the age of eight provided that I take lessons and then as I progressed I got a piece at a time you know they got me a cymbal and then a thing thing. so when I finally got a hi-hat which was one of the last things I got I was learning how to to operate it you know and and everyday people and everybody is a star and sing a simple song. Those were the songs that I learned how to kind of work the hi-hat by listening. Because that's all I did was listen to music. And I had a great record collection. I started collecting records when I was about two years old. My parents always got me records. I'd say, oh, can I get the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they would get me the records. So they're very supportive people. And so uh, anyway, so I learned how to, operate a hi-hat listening to those three records in particular and then years later i ended up becoming friends with greg you know and so uh in the 90s uh, i was making a keith richards expensive winos record uh uh, in northern california we decided to, to make the main offender record in northern california at a great studio called the site and that's where and, and Greg lives in that area. So Greg was looking for some new symbols. And uh, I said, well, well, you know, I had a Piesty. I have still to this day a, a Piesty endorsement. They make great symbols. I love their symbols. And um, so I said, well, I'll get I'll get I'll bring some symbols and I can get you know, give you some symbols. And and he lent me some symbols and this the hi hat symbols that he let me other hi-hat symbols that are on this record. So I, so I didn't even realize it at the time. And for some odd reason, at the end of the session, those symbols got shipped back to New York with my symbols, and he got my new symbols. And I started to play them in New York on a session. It was really funny. I discovered that I had them. My uh, drum tech and partner uh, in crime when I do my sessions, his name is Artie Smith, and um, we've been working together for years. And I was doing a Sissy Houston album. And he said, oh, yeah, I got these cymbals here. Uh, these were Greg's. Uh, why don't you try them out on this song? Because I usually, you know, from tune to two, tune, change out what's appropriate for the song. I just don't use the same stuff on every song. You know, if song is calling for a certain sound. So I said, yeah. And then I started to play him. I said, wait a minute. This is the sound that I grew up listening to. <laughs> this is incredible. And I realized that these are the symbols. And he let me hang on to them. I mean, they're his, but I've had them ever since. And when I play them, I hear those records. So cut to years later, I was asked to produce a Sly and the Family Stone remix album. And there were a couple of things where... I, I played some stuff to expand the track or whatever. Yeah. And I played and it was seamless because they were the same symbols. <laughs> it was amazing. Amazing thing. But yeah. So yeah, and I I have those symbols. I also have 
one of Al Jackson's drums that Willie Mitchell gave me. <clears throat> There's a sound on the Al Green records where Al Jackson was would play a beat and then he'd have a drum fill that would just consist of striking a tom-tom. So, boom. know and that would be the fill just one strike of a drum i have that drum man yeah so um yeah and then i have also one of elvin jones's ride cymbals and i believe it's the ride cymbal that might have been on my favorite things it sounds exactly like that cymbal i can't verify that it is the cymbal but it sounds exactly like it and i bought it uh from his estate Keiko Jones uh, is in partnership uh, with a drum dealer. And so I played through his collection of cymbals. And this particular cymbal was amazing. And I thought, okay, I got to have that cymbal. <laughs> so so I purchased the cymbal. So I have that too. So I have a couple of pieces that are priceless and that I use because they're meant to be used. Right. Yeah. Do they you only use them in the in the studio or do they come out on the road sometimes to I don't take them on the road, but I, I do I have played the Elvin symbol live, but I try not to travel with them. I will take them to studios and I don't you just take them they they only show up on projects that are, you know, near <laughs> the nearest and dearest to me, so I've used them on obviously on the on the verbs. I use them on a Tom Jones record uh, that I did in the late 90s that never came out. It's his best record he's ever made. Uh, that's another story. Okay. But uh, it's an amazing record, but I used it on that, you know, and a couple other things. Well, I want to pick up on something you said, and this can sort of wind our way to another record that was on your list in a minute, mm-hmm. but what you were saying about the Al Jackson Jr. Phil where he just hits the tom once and it's right. that simple. Right. But just the idea of like fills that are that sort of signature mm-hmm. and it's sort of, it was a Ringo thing too. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if you think of yourself as having, because I was, I remember I've been in sessions where the, like the, the drummer's warming up or something and then he's playing something and then I got, I get on the talk back and it's like, that's in repair. Or that's who do you think I was? <laughs> oh, that's funny. I don't, know, I don't know if you think of them like that, but I think you have films that you've played on records that are, you know, even if you hear them out of context like that, it's something can be really simple, but it's really characteristic. I know that, for instance, Benny Benjamin created uh, the drum fill 
that everybody uses in pop music. That the the thing that sets up a verse or sets up a chorus. That 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 do you know that thing or papaboom. You know, it's a two beat fill, and he invented that. He created a vocabulary. Al Jackson has a da 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 da. You know that kind of thing on the snare drum, or that one striking of a thing. A Ringo, you know that kind of thing. Fred Bilo, you know, and the Chuck Berry records. You know, they're all there are certain people that have created a thing. Steve Gatwood is a pop pop pop, you know that kind of thing. I I don't know if I have a signature thing. I do like the simple fill. I don't try to fill very much at all really I go back and forth to no fills at all hardly hitting a symbol to maybe playing fills that are melodic that go with the music like Ringo did later on in his career basically started it around you know right around Sgt. Pepper right around 1966 when they really started to uh expand drum sounds and stuff and he started to to really orchestrate uh, the songs with the big Tom Fills you know that kind of yeah. thing which I love they're almost well they swing you know a lot of people don't realize that these guys listen to jazz and big band music and swing and stuff so that stuff comes into play you know in how they interpret the music that they're playing you know so I may have I know that I may have influenced some people sonically because I'm so into sound so drum sounds are paramount to me as a producer when you listen to a record I know that as as a listener I know that when I was a kid listening to records well, well, what do you hear first well people you know the bag beat and then the vocal sound and maybe some other kind of air candy as we say and it's just something that catches your attention that's unusual. But it's the backbeat, the vocal, and some kind of melodic hook, you know, and something unusual sounding. So that's how I create uh, recordings. And the drum sound is paramount. So I focus on, uh, you know, that is a major focus when I'm making records. And uh, I think that, that's probably the biggest takeaway from what I do in the studio. So, yeah. Is that one of the main reasons you became a producer was to get control over the way your, your drums were going to sound from the start and end of the process? Um, yeah, actually. Yes. In fact, how I decided to become a producer is a funny story. I was working on this record with a, a very popular disco group late 70s, early 80s, I guess, late 70s, called Odyssey. And they had a big record, Native New Yorker. It's a big disco hit. So we're working on the next album at one of my favorite studios in the world called the House of Music in West Orange, New Jersey. 
the head engineer and owner of the studio was Charlie Conrad. Charlie Conrad taught me a lot about recording. He, and um, he taught me about certain microphones and he really took the time to say, oh, this mic does this and that and that. I learned about what a recording console does and everything. Because when you, you, know, you first look at a recording desk, you go, that looks so complicated. There's no way. But then once you realize it's all modules, they're all the same. You just look at one thing. You look at the, if you figure out one thing, you can figure out the whole thing, you know. Yeah. But it's very intimidating when you go into the studio. You see all this equipment. You go, I'll never be able to operate any of this stuff. But anyway, he was very influential on me. And, and so he was the engineer on this record. And we worked for two weeks tirelessly creating these m- magical rhythm tracks for each song just the rhythm section it was an all-star rhythm section and the sounds were great they were big they were lush the grooves were intense and i was very proud to be working on this record and uh, i thought wow this is going to be a big record you know and i was very young and I, and so when you are a new york studio musician and you're trying to break through you know you're thinking oh wow this is going to be I hit record, I'm going to hear myself on the radio. You know, you're very, yeah, yeah. very excited about the whole process. So we work on this record, and then I used to do something that no nobody really did. And I was so naive that I, I, I never stopped to ask this question that nobody would do. I would ask for the rhythm tracks, just a cassette of the rhythm tracks to take home, just to listen. I would just listen to the tracks. Right. And I would really get into it and, and and really dissect it and groove on it, and I and you know I'd be cleaning the you know the apartment and listening to the tracks or whatever you know, and I just would love it. Every session I did, I w- I wanted to see if I if the engineer uh, would give me a, a tape of the tracks, and it was one of my favorite things. And uh, I'm listening to the tracks over, and I go, oh man, this is going to be a great record. Well, the record comes out. And they had overdubbed a bunch of stuff on it, like horns and strings and vocals and everything, which I knew was going to happen. But the end result was everything sounded really small and squished and terrible. It was it didn't reflect any of the stuff that we had done. And besides the fact that I was amazingly disappointed, I thought to myself, "Well, if that's production, I can do that because I just that's a, I can ruin a record if that's what it takes. <laughs> I can do that." So that's when I decided that I, I, I wanted to be a producer. Right. And I, the corollary to that question is the Verbs albums. Mm-hmm. Would I be right in thinking that is the, maybe purest is the wrong word, but because that's, it's one thing if you're producing a record and you're playing drums on it, but it's not your record, you know, right. it's a record for you right. know, John Mayer or Robert right. Cray or someone. Right. So, to some extent, the sound you're going for is the sound of their songs. What's right. right for that? But this is not just your playing and your production, but it's your songs as well. So, is right. this the ultimate or the purest? It is the purest and the ultimate thing. And the way Megan Boss writes and the way we write together, we love making music together and... We both have this just deep love for music and and we've had kind of our tastes are very similar in the stuff that we love and the thing that 
she allows me to do with her songs is go for it. She doesn't say don't do this or don't do that or be, you know, I don't have to, you know, she's given me the freedom to do what I hear in my head on the records. I mean, quite frankly, she's a producer herself. You know, she knows what she likes and what she doesn't like. So it's a collaborative effort, but it's really us going for any kind of thing that we want to do. And that's what's so exciting about it and and why I love it so much, because it's really a true reflection of us. There are no holes barred. You know, that's why our first album and now the verbs, we basically play every instrument on it. And we really explored what we had to offer the world music. fourth album now called Garage Sale, which is a very raw, rockin' uh, statement. You know, she was in two all-girl bands that she started, but one band in particular, a second band, the Antoinettes, were a real force in the New York scene, the downtown scene, and she played CBGBs a lot. Hilly Crystal actually managed them uh, briefly. That's the scene I wanted to be in. Right. And I never was able to break through. I was in another <laughs> band, and I always wanted to play CBs. I never got a chance. It was crazy. And she was playing CBs every week, you know. like you know, And it was wild, and we never really knew each other then. We had mutual acquaintances and stuff, but we didn't know each other then. So when we finally uh, hooked up, you know, that she was the voice and the, the, uh, the musician that I had been searching for, you know, to complete my dream with a band, you know. And so we, uh, you know, so, yeah, that is the purest attempt that I I, uh, I do as a producer, you know, and as a composer, you know, with our band. And the new record, is it ju- is the two of you playing everything or are there other players on it no, as well? No, in fact, we just added a guitar player to the band named Souvenir, who was in the Antoinettes. Cool. And uh, she is fantastic. Uh, and uh, it's really even closer to the sound that we have aspired to have uh, for years. It's gritty. It's no... The one thing that I that gets tricky when you're making records for other people is you have to take into account their careers and what they have achieved. And you, and you don't necessarily get as loose as you would want, you know, because a lot of the artists that I work with can be as great as they are they can be a little careful they don't sometimes don't let it all hang out except for maybe keith richards keith will let it all hang out i learned a lot working with keith and writing with keith 
but you know some people just a little you know as great as they are and they're great I, I work with great great artists but everybody has what you know their tolerance of or, or their you know their taste level you know so when it's your band you get to do your thing and my thing is my favorite records are raw rocking records that's why I love the kinks the kinks in particular uh, you know are amazing to me I was a big Pretenders fan as well you know and of course my love for James Brown is second to none and and James's whole thing was like in the studio creating and you get that groove going and then you know I mean it's just one or two takes you're lucky if you get a second take you know but the feel and the the the, the magic it's about capturing the magic when I when I record the rhythm track, the take is paramount. I don't record records where, okay, that take is good and we are good enough to overdub on and we can try to make it. No, no, no. If you don't have it in the rhythm track, you don't have it because that's where the magic is. That's where you hear on the Al Green records with the high rhythm, what Millie Mitchell was doing. They got tracks. The Funk Brothers of Motown, they got the tracks. Booker T and the MGs, they got the tracks. You know, You know, the Beatles, you know. They got a track, and then they overdub. The Stones are the perfect example. You know, people learn their mistakes. The Stones they'll keep a mistake in because the, the because it's, it's not a mistake. If you listen to it two or three times, it's part of the song. You know, it's yeah. part of recorded history. And then you go to a bar, and then you'll hear a band play the mistake. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. That's the record history. That's that's a commitment to well, the, the, we'll never get that again because that's the groove, that's the that's the feel, that's the magic, you know, and that that's the thing about recording, you know, you capture that magic, it's immortal. Well, that it's funny, like because I don't think people, well, some people probably do, but I think that we were just talking about then and that that raw, punkier CBGBs edge of you know vibe and music mm-hmm. that you that you love so much i don't think it's what people primarily associate with your playing necessarily but i was watching i was just watching some youtube clips last night mm-hmm. um because i knew we were doing this this morning and one of the things that i watched again that i hadn't seen in a while was you playing with uh neil young on saturday night live right, in right. 89 doing rocking in the free world right and that is punk as fuck Yeah, yeah. And that's why Neil, see, Neil's a perfect example of letting it all hang out. When I recorded Landing on Water with Neil Young, it was one of the greatest recording experiences of my life. And in fact, we wrote a song together, even though it just has his name on it. But he does admit that I wrote it with him. (laughs) It's one of those things that happens in the business, people, um, called Pressure. And... um, we recorded that record as a trio. Danny Korchmar was the producer, and he played synthesized bass, and then maybe uh, and Neil played guitar, and I played drums, and then I sang uh, background vocals with Neil, and and that's when I met Nico Bolas, and we did the rough mixes 
uh, that became some of the mixes actually on the record. Right. An amazing experience. And Neil is as raw as all get out. He goes for the magic and he lives it. And to this day, he's the same way. And that's what I love him. And that's why he's so vital to this day. That's why he's out now playing with uh, Lucas Nelson. Lucas Nelson's band. And they and they sound great. You know, he can always he is a beacon for, you know, people like uh, Pearl Jam and all these bands that want to be Neil Young because he is the same. He is raw and he is rocking. We have him on the Sheryl Crow record that I'm making now. And it was a song that she wrote with. I believe she co-wrote it with Jeff Trott. I'm not really sure. It might just be her song. But it reminded me of a Neil Young. It's a Neil Young song. So, you know, in a way, you know, that feel. So I said, well, let's get Neil. And I said, it's great. I know. So, and then he agreed to do it, which is like very rare. Yeah. Right? And the whole thing was not to get him to overdub, but to track it with us. I wanted to get his acoustic guitar and me playing the drums to get that churning kind of thing. As it turns out, Neil is Jeff Trott's hero, so he couldn't believe he was playing with Neil Young. <laughs> the whole thing was magical, and we got it on the first take. But the thing is, is that, you know, Neil was playing. He's playing the acoustic guitar, and he beat his guitar a little out of tune and everything like that. And, you know, but it doesn't matter because that's the take. That's the magic. It, was, it will never happen again. It was amazing. So you just work around the tune. You know what I mean? Who cares? You know, like every record that I've ever loved, nothing's completely, totally in tune. That's all the whole part of people's sound. Yeah. Doo-wop, you know, you, you sang a little flat, a little sharp. You know, that's all part of First it's like Stones a, records. You know, yeah, you think this whole thing about perfect time. You know, the records, you know, the verse is supposed to be a tempo. And then the chorus is supposed to be another tempo. And then you slip back down in the verse. And then the bridge has another tempo. You know, this everything being so quantized and tuned and everything not only is it not human but it leads to a very short uh shelf life i don't know any record right that has been made that way uh in the last 10 years that with those are being the priorities you know that gives you a sense of like i'm always going to remember that record no it, it like evaporates where the other records that were made purely from the heart, where that was the beacon, are the records that live forever and ever. That's why we're still dissecting the Beatles 50 years after and Elvis 60 years after and Chuck Berry and Little Richard and all of those records that are still Al Green records, Willie Mitchell records, Stax records, Motown records. None of them were made with, with that technology or that thinking. So I I think analog in a digital world. I try to use as many tubes as possible to to warm up the sound so it doesn't have this brittle digital thing that that everybody has gotten used to, but they hate. But now that's why kids are now getting in the vinyl because oh that's the way it's supposed to sound amazing, you know it's that kind of thing. You know, um, people get used to something because that's the only thing available until they hear what it could be then they go wow so you know that's why you have people going back in time trying to sound like they're in the 70s and stuff like yeah, that yeah. you know that you know it's it's uh i guess it's par for the course but um because i remember in the 80s everybody was trying to jump back to the 50s you know so you know <laughs> yeah. so that's i guess that's part of the thing but um 
you can't replace there's no substitute for something from the heart you know and so that's what I try to do when I record the heart and soul of a rhythm track or a vocal or uh, any kind of recording is paramount a minute ago you said um, you learned a lot of things from working and writing with Keith Richards and I thought because we're recording this on his 74th birthday I just want to ask if there was anything like a particular example or something. Yeah, today is his birthday, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's funny. Well, you're talking about here again, another example of working with your heroes and stuff. I never thought that when I first saw him when I was eight years old on the Ed Sullivan show that I'd be writing songs with him and him being such a close friend of mine, like a big brother. Very strange, you know. You can't make this stuff up. What he taught me about writing music, especially rock and roll songs, is uh, the space that, for the music. And, and, when it, and it's a very simple thing, but if you, if you really listen to a Stones record, the vocals don't always cover up the guitars. They're not always, there's not always singing going on. Right. There's like music, music, and then there's some singing, and then there's music and music. So, and the, the lesson... The, it was the biggest lesson. We were working on a song called uh, Take It So Hard on the first album, Talk Is Cheap. recorded the track and uh, he had done this thing what we call vocalese vocalese and and, and uh, vowel movement as we say <laughs> so he would simulate a vocal because he knew where he wanted it to sit but he didn't have all the words but it was like mm, but they sounded right but they weren't fully thought out words right and then what I would do is um, sit with the tape and write come up with a story out of the vocal out of the vowel movement right so you know we had the hook you shouldn't take it so hard but the verses you know where that's where the vowel movement came in so so we were in Antigua and I had the tracks and uh, I had really worked on the lyrics and I came up with this whole thing, and I thought, man, this is like, I thought it was Bob Dylan, you know I mean? I had this whole story written out, and it was great, and it made sense going into the hook, and I was really proud. I couldn't wait to show him, you know, we had finished the song, and I said, here are the lyrics, man, this is great. And he's a great lyricist, and he's the king of the one-liners. So for him to even trust me writing lyrics, you know, and interpreting his thought process was already the greatest compliment that I could receive. So with that in mind, I wanted to give it my all, you know, have it be great. And this is his first solo album. It's very important. All eyes are going to be on this record and this new partnership. Obviously, I, you know, it was very intense. So I take it to him and I show him, I got this legal pad and uh, I show him the lyrics and he reads it down 
And he says, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's nodding, nodding, nodding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then he takes a pencil out and he scratches out every other line. And it was amazing because the song still made sense. I didn't need all those words to make a point. And it allowed the guitar to breathe within the lyric. So it was like, oh, my God, what an amazing songwriting lesson that was from a guy who's in the Songwriting Hall of Fame. I mean, it's like the first line. Then you let the guitar freaking do its thing. And then another line. You know, you don't, you don't sing over the guitar. You know, you don't sing over the music all the time. It's rock and roll. And then, and then, and then all the Stones stuff started to make even more sense to me. And then I went back and listened to stuff. And in fact, when he wrote Give Me Shelter, I heard that he did the original vocal on Give Me Shelter. And a friend of mine had gotten me the tape. And I had played it, and I had later played it for Keith because he hadn't heard it in about, at that point, like 20 years or something. But the original vocal that he did, uh, when it gets to the, oh, uh, it's just a shout away, right? Yeah. What he did was, he sang, it's just a shout away, and then, he didn't sing, it's just a shout away, it's just a shout away. All right. He did it's just a shot away and then let the guitar go like that. Do the answer. Yeah, do the answer. Right. And when I heard that, I went, that's incredible, you know. And so that was part of the lesson that I learned about how he hears music and the the magic of the stones. And it's a call and response, very African in that way, you know. Uh, That's what he'd like to do with vocals. He liked, and he would call it the call and response thing. That's why he loved the four tops and the spinners and the temptations. Because you have the lead vocal, then you'd have the backgrounds answering the lead and everything. And it's a very African thing, the call and response. So, so that, yeah, I learned that from him. He, he, he pointed that out and crystallized that whole thing for me. Wow. Well, speaking of call and response, and this might be the, a good way to, to bring this conversation home, one of your, the records that you, was on your list was a James Brown record. Right, you know, yeah. Master of Call and Response. Yes, exactly. So I wonder if you talk about his influence on you and then one of, I'm sure must have been a rite of passage for you, playing with him on oh Lenneman in 82. Um, well... James Brown is the ultimate uh, showman, energy, innovator of syncopation and really took this rhythm and blues, as we say, to another level as far as just hardcore groove and, as they say, funk or whatever. But, you know, soul music, he like to call it, you know, just soul music, you know, powerful soul music. And... Um, Sex Machine Live in Augusta, Georgia is a powerful record. You have Clyde Stubberfield playing drums. You have Bootsy Collins on bass. K. 
Catfish Collins, guitars, um, just the whole, the band, the JBs were on such fire. And those guys were so full of life and they were such great players and innovative players and they knew that the groove was paramount. So you didn't see them trying to overplay or be disgruntled about playing a part that created a hypnotic feeling. You see, people, they let their egos get in the way when they play, especially drummers. So, like, you can never get, and guitar players too, you can never get them to just lay down the groove without them feeling like, well, I got to throw something in because, you know, come on, man, you know, you know I'm bored or something like that. Yeah. No, they don't understand the majesty and the power the power of just creating a feeling that takes people to another place. Forget about yourself. You're playing for the people. You want to take the people on a trip. So if you listen to Give It Up, Turn It Loose on that record, you know, and they do the breakdown, and he says, Clyde. Bootsy. I mean, that's just unbelievable. It's incredible. And that's the ultimate. That to me is the ultimate. So when I got the chance to play with James Brown in 1982 of July, on the first year of the Letterman show, it was incredible because I've waited my whole life to play with James Brown. I've been listening to James Brown since I was 9, 10 years old. I used to carry around a record player, my my records, and uh, sometimes I DJ for my parents or my aunt and uncles. They had a party, and I was DJ uh, at school and class. And I remember being on a bus with my little portable record player. I think going to camp or on a school trip, a school outing, with my little record rack, my portable Panasonic record player, battery operated, playing uh, Licking Stick over and over and over again. I love that record, you know. So James Brown is in my DNA. So by the time we got to play with him, I've been waiting my whole life to play with him. How old were you then? Uh, on the Letterman show then? Yeah. I was in my 20s. He, he had heard about the band. People had heard about the band because we were we were actually a real band. Uh, the, the Three quarters of the band was in a band I was in called the 24th Street Band, which was Will Lee, Hiram Bullock, Clifford Carter, and myself. And then Paul Schaefer asked me to be in the band as he was putting together a band for this television show. And he said, well, who should we get? I said, well, we should get our band. Well, I already have a band. Let's go. You know, So we did that. Uh, and Paul, obviously, was the keyboard player, not Clifford. But So we were firing on all cylinders. I mean, Willie was the hottest bass player in New York at the time anyway. And Hiram Bullock was taking everybody by storm uh, as a great guitar player. And, and he, he was... Uh, he had such freedom while he was playing, and he was an amazing player. So we were on fire. So, you know, people, he had heard about the band, but he never played with us. So he came with two horn, he, horn players, Holly Ferris from Nashville, Tennessee, and, um, and St. Clair Pinckney, the, the, the great baritone tenor player who played on a lot of, he'd been with James forever. You know, so it was great to meet and play with St. Clair uh, for the first time. So... We played, we were just supposed to play Sex Machine, and if there was enough time, maybe there was a time. 
what happened was we played Sex Machine. so incredible that he by the end of Sex Machine he was ad-libbing doing scatting he was we took him to another level you know he did not expect what he got we were waiting to play with him our whole lives so we were on him like white on rice okay (laughs) and we were just you know this was the the opportunity of a lifetime This, this was it this was this is what we had worked and practiced for you know our entire being was in this performance and at the end of sex machine he looks back and he's pointing to the band he's putting his thumbs like whoa you know yeah this band what about this band you know like so then it's clear that now he is completely moved and we come out of the commercial break and we go into there was a time and then it's all ad lit we had not rehearsed it (laughs) It was just what we knew from the record and everything. And Bootsy told me that's when he first played with James. It was basically the same thing. He said to Bootsy, well, you know, you know the record. You know, I'm just going to count the record off. Down, count you in. You know the record. Let's go. That trust that he had in you knowing his music. So we did There Was a Time, and it was just incredible. Just a complete go-for-it thing. And then... After we did that, and he was completely blown away by that, we had going into the bumper, the bumper music, which is going into commercial, in our repertoire, we played I Got the Feeling. Right? So he heard that we knew I Got the Feeling, and he freaked out. <laughs> so, so basically, he took over the show. There were all the guests and everything. They all got bumped. And, um, <laughs> and then he says to, to David, he says, uh, Dave, before we close, uh, can we close with I Got the Feeling? And... And I scream. You can hear me, you know, I'm audibly, I go, whoa, you know, because now I'm going to play I Got the Feeling with James Brown. James Brown. that going out and the show ends with him and uh, we don't even 
the ending of the sh- the song is not even on the air. We all go off the air. We're still playing. So after the show, I go into his dressing room to get an autograph. And it's funny because he's sitting under a hairdryer. Like he's like the, he's got the crown on his head yeah, yeah. You know, and the whole thing. And Al Sharpton is behind him because he used to be his valet or something. It was crazy. <laughs> and, um, and he gets out from under the dryer and he comes up to me and he grabs me and says, Brother, you're high. You're high. And I'm going, what? I don't know what he means. You know, I'm like, I'm not high. What are you talking about? He says, your energy is high. He says, this is the best performance I've done in front of cameras since the Tammy show. Now, this is the greatest compliment that can ever be paid to anyone because we know the magnitude of the Tammy show. And I'm saying to myself, I've seen James Brown on Ed Sullivan. I've seen him on Merv Griffin. I've seen him on... I've seen, and I've seen him on numerous, you know, Hollywood Palace, everything with his band. And it's just been incredible. So I don't really know what he means, but it took me about 25 years to figure out what he meant. What he meant was, even though he gave those great performances with his band, they were scripted because that's how tight his band was. So he knew exactly what he wanted to do and everything like that. So all the stuff on Soul Train and everything like that, that was all amazing. But he had that together, you know. It was his unit. The thing that happened in front of at the Tammy show was though, even though it was his band, it was a smaller band at the time. And he just went for it because this was like his, he knew that this was going to be his time to show the world that he was the king. So he went for it. Well, this is kind of had that same kind of energy with the improvisation. He was making a comeback. You know, people were starting to, to, to rediscover James Brown. And so he took it on with that same type of approach, that same kind of like, I'm the king. I'm going to show everybody I'm the king. And he and we were the band to back him up with that. So he did all kinds of things that weren't scripted. Like none of it was scripted. And that's what he meant by by that uh, statement. And, and, but it took me a minute to figure it out. Uh, it is truly the highlight of my television career. Uh, I don't think that it's possible to actually top it. In fact, from that moment on, it was downhill for me on Letterman Show, really, because there was no, there was nowhere to go. You know what I mean? We played with Sly Stone, we played with BB King, Wilson Pickett. That was pretty hot. Um, Whitney Houston, uh, Tom Jones. Uh, we played with everybody, but the James Brown thing, that was it. That was that was that was it. So that was in the first year. So I was like, uh oh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. What a note to end on. Uh, Robert Crane, High Rhythm is out now. The new uh, Garage Sale, is that the name of the... Garage Sale by The Verbs is not out yet, but it'll be out in 2018. Uh, Both records on our label, JV Records, which is really amazing. Megan and I have this label, and we were able to sign Robert Cray, and it's, uh, it's nominated for a Grammy, and we are just so thrilled, and... It was such an honor to work with Robert and High Rhythm as a unit. One of my favorite records, probably as far as production goes, 
it would be in the top five for me as far as productions that I've worked on in my in my career. I mean, here again, they had total trust in me. I engaged high rhythm. I said, look, guys, I want you to do the same thing you did when you were working with Willie Mitchell and Al Green. I want you to be a band. I'm not just hiring you to be sidemen. This is a band. This is a collaboration. So basically, I took the place of Al Jackson Jr. and Howard Grimes, and, and Robert Cray took the place of Teeny Hodges, the late, great Teeny Hodges. And so we had high rhythm. And uh, Reverend Charles Hodges on, on organ and piano, Hubby Turner on electric uh, piano and clavinet and Leroy Flick Hodges on bass and those are the guys who played on all Al Green and and uh, O.V. Wright and, and, and Ann Peebles and, and they play better today than they played then so it's, it's, it's a special record and if I was going to play a clip from one of the songs on that record to take us out on the show now which track should I pick? Uh... The O.V. Wright cover that we do, you must believe in yourself. Cool. Well, that's what you're about to hear, and go and buy the record. Thank you. That's it for another episode of My Favourite Album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myfavouritealbum. Subscribe on iTunes. And if you dig the show, please leave a review. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.